Well, hey, good morning, First Church. So glad you guys are here. And I just want to take a moment before we get started just to let you know how much fun I'm having here. My family is just loving being here, loving being at First Church. You guys have been so gracious and kind and loving to us, and we just appreciate you so much. You know, when you move 12 hours away from your home and all that kind of stuff, uproot your family, you wonder what you're walking into. Even with all the interviews and all the questions I ask, you know, you still wonder what you're walking into. And you guys have just been great, and we do feel like that we're family here. So thank you so much for that. And we're having new people come every single week, new families come. Well, at least that's what I've been told. I've been here two and a half months. You're all new to me. But still, uh, we're having apparently new people come all the time, and that's just so exciting. God is definitely at work. In case you don't know, we are one church that meets in three different locations. So at this time, if you would, welcome our family out of Verdigris and Stone Canyon to our conversation today. I don't think it's a secret around here that I'm a pretty big basketball fan. Now, my entire life, I've watched college basketball. Haven't been much of an NBA fan, just because we didn't have an NBA team back home. But I've always watched college basketball. Now, I'm a little bummed right now because my team lost this past week. Uh, Kentucky lost, and I already planned to wear UK blue today, so I did it anyway, even though we lost. I'm still a UK fan, so I've got my blue on, sporting my blue. Uh, but I'm a little bit bummed, so don't talk to me about Kentucky at all, okay? Just don't mention that in the, out of the hub or in the lobby. Just don't bring that up. But I haven't really watched a lot of NBA until I moved here, because uh, everybody kept talking about the Oklahoma City Thunder. Do we have any Thunder fans in the room? Anybody? Okay, we've got some. Good. And so Alex has started watching some Thunder games, and he's getting really into it, and so we have too. And he came to me the other day, and he said, Daddy, can I have an Oklahoma City Thunder jersey? And I was like, man, you guys are converting him. You know, you're influencing him. And so for Valentine's Day, sure enough, this is what we got him. I mean, isn't that adorable? Isn't that just great? And uh, he wears it all the time, wears it to his preschool. He wears it proudly, and he's been wanting to go to a Thunder game, and tickets are like really expensive. I didn't realize they were that expensive, uh, but it just so happens a friend hooked us up, and we're going to get to go uh, later today to a Thunder game, and Alex is just on cloud nine. He is so excited, and this will be my first ever NBA game. Never been to one, so hopefully it'll be a fun experience for our entire family. Uh, but even though I don't watch, or I have in the past watched a lot of uh, pro basketball, one thing I always enjoy watching it's the NBA All-Star Slam Dunk Contest. I always enjoy watching this because it's really neat to see what the guys can do. And I'm not sure if you saw this, but a few years ago, Zach Levine and Aaron Gordon did some things that I had never seen anyone else do with a basketball before. I mean, they were just absolutely incredible, absolutely amazing. And when you look at these clips in slow motion, you can really see the physical nuances and what they're actually doing in midair. I mean, it's just crazy. I did this last night, actually. No, I'm kidding. Not really. Uh, but still, it is really incredible. But what amazed me, I guess what caught my attention even more than the outstanding moves they were making was the reaction from other NBA players who are watching on the sidelines and former NBA players. I mean, they are just shocked, <laughs> if you can't tell. But what these guys are doing, just absolutely amazed. Look at Shaq there. He just can't believe it, you know? I mean, they're stunned because those guys, they know how hard this is. They know how difficult that stuff is, and even they were amazed. And even though they didn't say it out loud, you can just read the expressions on their faces. They're saying, I can't believe he just did that. I can't believe he just did that. You ever been with somebody and you've thought that? I can't believe they just did that. I can't believe they just said that can't believe what I'm seeing. Well, as you read through the Gospels, the 
uh, which record the life of Jesus, you will see several different moments in his life, seismic moments, when Jesus did some pretty incredible things that probably left people scratching their heads saying, did he really just do that? I can't believe he just did that. I mean, when you read about Jesus feeding the 5,000 or walking on water or healing the lame or healing the blind or even bringing somebody back from the dead, calming the storm, whatever, I'm sure those who witnessed those events probably thought, did we really just see that? Did that really just happen? Did he really just do that? And if I were to ask you right now to name some of the groundbreaking, earth-shattering, unbelievable, seismic, epic moments in Jesus' life and ministry, you would probably name some of the examples that I just listed. But I wonder today if you would name an event that happened in John chapter 13. Because in John chapter 13, Jesus doesn't do anything miraculous or supernatural. But I believe what he does in John chapter 13 is about as epic as you can get. It's about as seismic as you can get. And what he does takes place in an upstairs room in the city of Jerusalem less than 24 hours before he's arrested and he ends up going to the cross. So if you have your Bibles, go and turn to John 13. That's where we're going to study today. If you have your Bible on you or a Bible app on your phone or tablet. And as we study John 13, I think we're going to look at something pretty incredible today. Something pretty seismic in nature. Now, verse 1 lets us know that it's Passover week in Jerusalem. And if you were a first century Jew, this was a huge deal. Because in the ancient Jewish world, there was no bigger day on the Jewish calendar than Passover. Jews from all over the Mediterranean world would travel to Jerusalem, the city of God, in order to celebrate God during this holiday week, this feast week. And to accommodate the influx of tourists and visitors coming to Jerusalem, the locals, the locals who lived in Jerusalem, they would open up their homes and they would rent out spare bedrooms and rooms that they had so that visitors, tourists, could stay with them, have some place to stay. There just simply weren't enough inns or hotels around in that day and age for people to stay in. This was a way for the Jews living in Jerusalem to help out their fellow Jewish brothers and sisters, but it was also a way for them to earn a little bit of extra money. Now, when we first came to Owasso, or at least accepted the position here at First Church, we had a week to find a house. We, we flew in, and we had a week to find a house. And if you ever have done something like that, that is a huge challenge. It's stressful. We'd probably looked at like two dozen different homes, maybe more than that, in that week time span. And we were worried by the end of the week that we weren't going to you know, have a house picked out. But we had a great realtor, and we ended up finding one, and it worked for us perfectly. But, you know, it was really stressful because we had some things on our checklist that we wanted. And one thing that I wanted was a spare bedroom because I knew we were moving 12 hours away and so we were going to have family that would come and visit us and probably not stay just a night or two, maybe a week or more. And so I wanted to have a spare bedroom so that our family members or friends who would come and visit wouldn't have to dish out money to strangers to stay in a hotel. So we're looking at all these houses and we had a couple that we liked but they didn't have that extra bedroom, that spare bedroom. And Allison said, you know, do we really need that extra room? And I was just like, Allison, I don't want for our family members and friends when they come visit to have to dish out money to strangers so yeah I would really like to find a house that has that and she looked at me and she said okay but how much are we going to charge them when they stay with us and I'm like no no we're not going to charge them anything she was just like well some of your family may stay too long if we don't charge them I'm like well that's a different story but no we're not going to charge them anything well families in the first century world living in Jerusalem they did they charged people this was a way to make extra money and this was pretty 
common practice. And what would happen is, when you paid your rent money to stay in a spare room, uh, they would provide everything that you needed to celebrate the Passover. The table would be set for you, the food would be made, they would have all the fixings and all the preparations done, they have the candles lit, everything would be ready for you to celebrate Passover. All you had to do was basically walk in and everything's set up, everything's decorated. Some of you guys who work for weeks decorating your house for Christmas or whatever, you'd probably love that if you just walked in and everything was ready to go. Well, that's what would happen. You know, you couldn't really bring food with you if you were traveling this day and age. You couldn't bring um, everything with you that you needed to celebrate Passover. So part of your rent fee was it was all set up. And Jesus took advantage of this custom. And apparently Jesus arranges for his disciples to celebrate Passover in an upstairs room, an upper room, in a moderate home in the city of, of Jerusalem. And so the disciples go with Jesus to this upper room. And can you imagine being one of the disciples on that night? I mean, Jesus has been saying for some time that something big is getting ready to happen. We know he's getting ready to go to the cross. And even though he's been predicting that he's going to have to die, they're not believing that. They're not buying that. They think maybe that's just like symbolic language or something. So they're ignoring that part of it. But they know something big is getting ready to happen. They know that God has sent Jesus to the world for this very moment. So something huge is getting ready to take place. So imagine being in Jerusalem, getting to celebrate Passover with Jesus. You climb up the back steps of this home, these clay steps. You go into the upper room, and there the table is already set. The candles are lit. The food is ready. The smell of food just knocks you down, and you know this is going to be a night to remember. This is going to be a Passover unlike any other. So everybody starts to find their seat around the table, and then that's when it happens. Something goes wrong. Luke 22, verse 24 says, A dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. So less than 24 hours before Jesus goes to the cross, less than 24 hours before Jesus is crucified, his disciples, his closest friends, are having a verbal arm wrestling contest about who's most important, who's the greatest. Now, there's a reason why this argument broke out. See, in this day, if you had a large group to eat like this, you would set up your table in a horseshoe fashion, a U-shaped fashion. Actually, you would use three tables. You'd put them together. To help illustrate what I'm talking about, I've got this diagram up here with me on, on the stage. So you would put three tables together in this horseshoe-type fashion, and everyone would sit around the outside edge of this table. And so people would come, and they would, uh, they would join in this meal. Now, we would assume that the head of the table would be up here, but that's not the case. In this day and age, the head of the table was over here, if you were sitting at the table to your right, and that's where Jesus is going to sit. It's actually the second seat from the end on the right-hand side. And then everyone else would gather around the table in descending order of importance. Now, the seat to Jesus' right, because remember, you reclined at table, you reclined on your left elbow, and you reclined at the table. The seat to Jesus' right, that's going to be the most important seat next to the seat of honor. And then the seat on the other side is going to be the second most important seat. And then everybody else is going to gather around in descending order. So when they start to sit down, apparently everybody is arguing and fighting because they want the most important seat. They want to be as close to Jesus as they can possibly get. Now, we might think that, you know, that's kind of childish, and why would you argue over something like that? But there's more to it than just sitting close to Jesus, and there's more to it than just bragging rights. Actually, there's a cultural factor here. 
So we mentioned a few weeks ago when we talked about Mary washing Jesus' feet, that in this day and age, before you could eat a meal, you had to have your feet washed. That was the custom of the day. You know, we have certain eating rules today, like when you gather around the table, not supposed to put your elbows on the table, which I don't understand at all. It's a lot more comfortable to eat with your elbows on the table, but maybe I'm from Kentucky. I don't know. But, uh, but still, you know, we have rules like that. Can't sing at the table. Don't chew with your mouth. We have rules like that. But, you know, some of those, it depends on where you were raised. This was a custom everywhere in Palestine. You did not eat unless your feet were washed. See, remember, walking, that's the primary mode of transportation in this day. And so people's feet over time, especially if you traveled from a far distance, I mean, they were caked with dirt and clay, and they were nasty. And so you would have your feet washed before you could eat. Well, here's what's happening. They've sat down to eat, but remember where they're eating. They're eating in a rented room, right? They're eating in an upper room that's not theirs. The host family who owns this house is downstairs. They're celebrating Passover themselves. And in this day and age, the person who is in charge of washing everyone's feet would have been a servant in the household or a slave in the household because washing feet, that was a demeaning role. I mean, that was a disgusting job. And so a slave or a servant would have to do it. Well, all the slaves and servants are downstairs serving the host family. They're in a rented room. And this family, they've provided a table, they've provided food, they have provided something to drink, they have provided um, all the arrangements for Passover, the candles and so forth. They've even provided a bowl of water, a pitcher, and a towel. But there's no servant. So what that means is, in this day, the person of least importance at the table has to wash everyone else's feet. That means one of the disciples are going to have to wash everyone else's feet. And none of the disciples want to do it. See, it's interesting when you put the different gospel accounts together, what we find out is that uh, John is on one side of Jesus, and that makes sense. John is the disciple that Jesus loved. He's probably closest to Jesus, closer to Jesus than anyone else. That makes sense. We'd assume on the other side of Jesus would be Peter, you know, or maybe James, part of the inner circle. But we, when you put the gospel accounts together, what we find out is Judas Iscariot, the one who will shortly betray Jesus, is sitting next to him. See, Judas, when he walked in the room, he figured out what was going on probably. He said, I'm not washing by his feet. So he got as close to Jesus as he possibly could. And I bet you that set Peter off. I bet you Peter is ticked. Now, Peter's a loud mouth anyway. I can relate to Peter. I mean, I get it. I understand. Peter's probably ticked. Judas, who do you think you are? You're not closer to Jesus than me. And that started it. And pretty soon they're all arguing. Nobody wants to sit over here. Nobody wants to be the one that has to go around and wash everyone else's feet. And so, they bicker, and they argue, and they go back and forth about who is the least important. Somebody's saying, Thomas, he's the least important. He's always doubting everything Jesus says. Or maybe James the less, James the younger. He's the youngest one here. He should have to wash everybody's feet. They're all debating over who's the most important. And Jesus just kind of sits back, listens to them argue, listens to them debate and promote themselves. And then Jesus silences their verbal exchange with a visual response. John 13, verse 4. He, speaking of Jesus, got up from the mill, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Don't miss what's going on here. The disciples are saying, like, arguing about who's most important, who's the greatest. 
And Jesus listens for a little while, and then he just casually gets up, grabs the basin of water and pitcher, grabs a towel, and the hands that crafted the universe scrub the dirt in between the toes of mere men. I'm blown away by that. The king of the universe acting like a mere slave in the presence of men who didn't deserve it. I'm blown away by that. And I bet you all the other disciples were too. I bet they're all thinking, is he really doing this? I can't believe he's doing this. There's no way. Did this really just happen? I bet you every single one of them is probably thinking, I wish it would have been me. Yeah, I may not consider myself the least among this group, but I know Jesus is greater than me. I bet you every single one of them feels bad, and they're probably thinking, I should have grabbed the towel. I should have been the one to do it. That's why when Jesus gets to Peter, Peter throws a square fit. No, no, I should be washing your feet, Lord. And Jesus says, listen, I'm going to teach you something here. Let me do it. And Jesus washes his disciples' feet like it's second nature. Because Jesus is letting them know what he's all about, what his life is all about. He's basically saying, my life is defined by the needs of others. In other words, love was the controlling ethic of Jesus' life and ministry. For Jesus, love wasn't just a word that he used. For Jesus, love wasn't just a concept that he taught about. For Jesus, love is who he is. Love is a verb. My grandparents, my mom's parents are still living. They're in their late 80s and I love them to death. They live in Springfield, Kentucky, and they're faithful, faithful people of God. But a couple years ago, my grandma had a pretty bad stroke, and it left her, um, well, she's never going to be the same again. Uh, She's still able to survive. My grandpa takes great care of her, but she has trouble putting her sentences together, and she's not able to do some of the household things she used to be able to, uh, to do. And I remember I went and saw her in the hospital right after she had had her stroke and visited with her and my grandpa. Some other family members, family members were there and cousins were there. And um, we were talking and we were having a good time even though my grandma, obviously, she was frustrated because she wasn't able to you know, say the things she wanted to say and whatever. And she was trying to get something out and we couldn't quite understand her, but something about her feet. And then we put it together. She said her feet were dry or they felt dry and she wanted someone to lotion her feet. Well, all of my cousins, we kind of looked at one another like, not me, you know, we're not going to do it. Feet are disgusting, not, not me. And so one of my cousins jumped up to go get a nurse to see if she would do it. And my grandpa's kind of hard of hearing, and so he didn't know what was going on. And so when he saw one of my cousins get up to go out the door, he said, where are you going? And we explained to him what grandma wanted. He said, don't go get a nurse. I'll do it. And he walked over and he grabbed the bottle of lotion, sat down on my grandma's bedside and began to lotion her feet. And we all just kind of looked at him, stunned. And I looked at my grandma and I said, Grandma, does that shock you? Does that surprise you that he would do that? And she struggled to get the sentence out, but she said, No, he loves me. You see, when it comes to my grandparents, 
Love isn't just something they say. It's not a word they just use. It's not a concept. It's a verb. It's not an obligation they have. It's a verb. It's who they are. And that's why Jesus is when it comes to us. He loves us to the point that he is willing to get down and scrub the dirt between our toes. Because Jesus is telling us, my life is defined by the needs of others. And here's the thing, he expects the same from us. Read on with me, if you would, in John 13, and pick up with me at verse 13, and look at what Jesus tells his disciples after he washes their feet. He says, You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Did you catch what Jesus is saying here? Look again with me at verse 15. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. In fact, four times in those five verses we just read, Jesus says, do as I've done, basically. Do as you've just seen me do. He repeats himself four times because he wants us to get something. You want to live in God's favor? You want to be part of God's kingdom? This is how God defines greatness. Greatness comes through service. And I know that is completely counterculture. That's not how the world is wired. But Jesus teaches greatness comes through service. And if the one who created the universe isn't above serving anyone, we shouldn't be above serving anyone. Jesus even washed the feet of Judas, knowing that Judas was going to betray him in just a little bit. The one who created the universe isn't above serving anyone. We shouldn't be above serving anyone. Now, what Jesus illustrated that night wasn't a new teaching. He had taught his disciples this before. In fact, back in Matthew 20, verse 25, Jesus is talking about power and authority in this world. And look at what he says. He says, you know how it is with pagan rulers, those people out in the world who have all this power and authority. They lord their authority over their subjects. They get all high and mighty and let everybody know it. They want everybody to know just how powerful they are, just how smart they are, just how much experience they have. But that's not how it's to be with you. If any of you wants to be great, he must be your servant. Jesus says, don't see greatness as the world seeks it. In the kingdom of God, greatness doesn't come by stepping on people. Greatness comes by serving people. And this was something that Jesus had been teaching from the very beginning. But apparently, it was something that his disciples had struggled to get. They hadn't quite got it yet, hadn't sunk in yet. And I want to ask you today, we're 2,000 years removed from the moment when Jesus washed his disciples' feet. And I wonder if we get this. I wonder if we really understand this. I saw an advertisement a while back for Snuggies. Anybody know what Snuggies are? Snuggies are kind of the, I don't know, they're a blanket with arms on it. You may have seen these advertised. i got a picture of it up on the screen. Um, they kind of look like bathrobes turned backwards, to, for me at least. And you can buy these, I guess. I mean, I was, on the, I was watching this commercial, and I thought, do people really buy these? I mean, is this really something people purchase? And so I did a little bit of research, what I do when I'm bored. Did a little research online, and sure enough, this is a multi-million dollar industry. And so I thought, well, you know, what's, what are these Snuggies all about? So I got on their website, the official Snuggies 
Snuggie website, and there are different types of Snuggies you can buy. Let me show you a few examples. Here's one. They make a beach Snuggie. Now, now just imagine this. Isn't this what you want on a hot summer's day in Florida? Fleece from head to toe. I mean, doesn't that make sense? Who wouldn't want a beach Snuggie? But this next one was my favorite. This is their evening gown or tuxedo Snuggie. And I saw this one. I thought, I got to get it. I got to buy it. So I did buy it. And let me tell you something. Guys, it works. My wife, she can't keep her hands off me since I got this. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. Probably should not have said that. Probably going to get some comment cards on that. Sorry. Okay. I'm kidding. I didn't even buy that Snuggie, all right? I'm joking. But honestly, I wonder if in the church today, in an attempt to attract more customers, if you will, have we tried to dress up Jesus and his teachings in a Snuggie? In order to make him a little more appealing, in order to make him a little more comfortable to be around. See, Jesus teaches that if you want to follow him, the first thing you have to be willing to do is die to self. In Luke 9, 23, he says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Deny himself. And take up his cross. That's the image of death. That's the image of a dead man walking. Deny himself and take up his cross daily, every single day. And follow me. In other words, Jesus' invitation to follow him can be summed up in three words. Come and die. Jesus told us, he tells us, that he came so that we could have life, real life, abundant life, life that lasts, life that is deep, life that is better than anything we have right now, anything we've ever dreamed. He came so that we could have life. But in order to receive the life that he wants to give us, we have to first be willing to die to self. And that makes some people feel really uncomfortable. Because what I've noticed is that a lot of people want the life that Jesus offers, but they don't want to have to die to self to get it. They don't want to have to give up their personal ambitions, their personal desires, their personal traditions, their personal preferences. They don't want to give up what makes them feel comfortable. They want life without death. They want the life Jesus offers without death to self. See, Jesus washing the disciples' feet, it's a prelude to the cross. The cross was the ultimate symbol of sacrifice, the ultimate moment of sacrifice. And I think over time, throughout the years, the church has tried to soften the edges of the cross. And we've turned the church into more of an entertainment venue, a social club, a meaningless ritual, a place for our own vanity than anything else. And people come to church, and they sit, and they get their $3 worth of God, and they go home feeling good about themselves, and they never serve anyone. Instead, they expect to be served themselves. That's why they come. And I'm afraid we've created a brand of Christianity that I'm not sure Jesus would even recognize. You ask any preacher out there, not just me, you ask any preacher out there about the different people who cause trouble in their churches, and they will tell you, I guarantee it, nine out of ten times, the people who are causing trouble are not causing trouble for a good reason. It's over a selfish issue. They're not getting their way.
Jesus teaches, if you want to follow me, if you want to live in relationship with my Father, if you want new life, a fresh start, if you want to live with purpose and meaning, it starts with death to self. And so I just want to ask you, who are you serving? Because here's two truths that I've learned over time. The first is this, only when we die to self will we really live, will we really live ourselves. Only when we give up trying to be managers of our own universe and let God lead us will we be able to live with meaning and purpose. Only when we humble ourselves before God's throne and let Him reign in our lives will we be able to find healing and restoration. And I think that's why the imagery that is accompanied with baptism is so important. Because in baptism, you guys know what we do. You've seen people be baptized. We enter a watery grave. We go down and we die to self. And then we come back up to live a new life. A new life that we're not in charge of anymore. A life where Jesus is Lord and He's leading us. And when we're baptized, it is a public declaration to the world and to God that we're dying to self so that we can live in Him. But sometimes people don't want to surrender self because they like being managers of their own universe. But what they forget is they're really not. They can pretend to be, but they're really not. We signed up Alex, uh, my son, for soccer and at the YMCA's, and we had to go to Tulsa for his first soccer clinics. And I told him, if you do everything that you're supposed to do, then we'll get McDonald's on the way home. He loves McDonald's. I mean, it's like his favorite place in the world to eat. So he's like, okay, Daddy. And sure enough, he did everything he was supposed to do. So we get in the car, and he said, do I get McDonald's? I was like, yeah, you get McDonald's, buddy. So we're driving back to Owasso. And I already planned. I told Allison, we'll stop at McDonald's in Owasso. We're not going to stop on the way. And we passed like three or four McDonald's, you know, from where the YMCA is in Tulsa to here. And every time we passed those golden arches, Alex would say, there it is. There's McDonald's. Let's stop. And I'd be like, no, buddy, we're not going to stop yet. We're going to wait to get closer to home. We're going to get McDonald's and take it back to the house. And I tried to explain the whole plan to him. But that just wasn't acceptable. You know, we were passing by a McDonald's. It was right there in front of us. So that just wasn't acceptable. And so he kept asking. And finally I said, now, Alex, don't ask again. I promise, I promise you, we will get McDonald's. It's not even lunchtime yet. We will get McDonald's. You'll be fine. But don't ask again. If you ask again, we're not going to stop. And so we drive a little bit further and we pass by another McDonald's. And as we do, he didn't ask me, but he said, Mommy? And Allison goes, yeah, buddy. And he goes, does daddy know what he's doing? <laughs> and I thought, yes, four-year-old, I know exactly what I'm doing. Can you drive a car? Do you have money to pay for McDonald's? Do you even know how to get home from here? Yes, four-year-old, I know exactly what I'm doing. I didn't say any of that. Allison defended me and did a great job, so I didn't have to. But, you know, sometimes I wonder if that's not how we treat God. And God's saying, listen, I've promised that I will get you where you need to go. Just trust me. I'm driving the car, not you. Just trust me to lead. I'll get you there. I know you're looking around and you think you have a better idea. Trust me. I've got a plan. Stick with me. I'll get you where you need to go. The other truth that I've discovered over time is this. Only when we die to self can we give life to others. See, we don't guilt people into accepting the life that Jesus offers. Some preachers try to do that. I don't guilt people into accepting life. I don't think we can. I don't think that's a, a healthy strategy. And we also can't force people into life. I mean, they've got to choose it themselves. No, what we're called to do is love people into life. As Christians, we are followers of the greatest servant of all. And he didn't chase after titles. 
He didn't try to climb the world's social ladder. He didn't try to impress people with his own success. He didn't demand his own way. Instead, he humbled himself and grabbed a towel and scrubbed the dirt between the toes of those who didn't deserve it in order to meet their needs. We serve a Lord who didn't rule from a palace, but who reigned through the cross. And his humility, his grace, his attitude of service should define who we are today. See, the more we pour the love of Jesus into people, the more we get a taste, or more they get a taste, excuse me, the more they get a taste of who he is. Jesus treated people better than they deserve to be treated. And he calls us to do the same. And I think that's why people flock to Jesus. I think that's why today people still die for Jesus. And I wonder what our church would look like, what our community would look like if all of us put aside ourselves and we together as a body started to grab some towels, wash people's feet, serve them, made our lives all about meeting the spiritual needs of those who are empty and broken and hurting. Jesus went out of his way to do just that, to infuse life to the empty, the broken, and the hurting. What are we doing? I have a friend in ministry, probably my best friend in ministry. His name is CJ, and he preaches at a church, and he was on staff with me in Indian Creek uh, before I left, and now he's just recently become a preaching minister himself. I'm proud of him. He's like 10 years younger than me, but I'm proud of him for all he's doing for the sake of Christ. But when I first met CJ, I asked him, I said, how do you know you want to go into ministry? And he told me this story. He said he was in high school and he'd grown up in church. His dad was a preacher, or dad still is a preacher, but he really wasn't that serious in high school about his faith. I mean, he went to church, but just, you know, how high schoolers can be, just wasn't that serious about his faith. And so there was a group from his church. They were going to go on a mission trip to Haiti. And he really had no desire to go and tell anybody else about Jesus, but he thought, hey, it might be cool to get away for three weeks. And so he decided to raise some money and sign up for the trip, and he went. And so he got out of work for three weeks that summer, and he got to go to Haiti. Now, Haiti really isn't a vacation spot. It's one of the poorest countries on the face of the planet, but still it was an excuse for him to get away and do something different, get outside of the small town he lived in. So he went to Haiti. And that entire, uh, the, that entire three weeks that he was there, he just kind of watched and he helped out when he could. He's a good guy, but, you know, he wasn't into, like, preaching or teaching or anything like that. He was just kind of, he just was an extra set of hands whenever they needed him. And one night they were having a church service and they invited people to come forward and accept Christ. And one elderly gentleman came forward, a native Haitian, came forward and pointed to CJ and then pointed to the water they had there to do baptisms, as if, will you baptize me? CJ didn't know the man, but he said, if you want me to do it, I'll do it. CJ had never baptized somebody before in his life. And according to CJ, this man, he was elderly. He was skin and bones because he was malnourished. In fact, he found out later the man had, had had nothing to eat for days. He had warps and whelps all over his um, Wounds and stuff all over his body, sores, that's the word for sores, whelps all over his body. And he was almost crippled, he could barely walk. And this man came forward and wanted CJ to baptize him, so CJ did it. CJ said, I didn't know what I was doing, but I'd seen people be baptized. I'd seen my dad do it, so I just mimicked what I've seen others do. And 
I baptized him. He said, when this man came out of the water, he said, I saw a look in his eyes like I hadn't seen before. This man was poor, I mean dirt poor. This man had nothing in the eyes of the world. He was sick, he wasn't healthy, he was weak. And when he came out of the waters of baptism, CJ said there was such joy and peace and excitement in his eyes. CJ said, I looked in his eyes and I realized he has something that I don't have. And so CJ decided then he was going to find what that man had. He rededicated his life. In fact, CJ was even baptized again. And then he dedicated his life to full-time ministry, full-time service. And now CJ is infusing the life that he's received into others, and I'm so proud of him for doing it. But it all happened because he saw life through the eyes of a man that had no reason to have that life, had no reason to be that excited, to have that much joy and peace, satisfaction, contentment. But he had it because he had given his life over to Jesus. And right now, maybe that's what you need to do. We have a whole lot. Even the poor in our country have a whole lot compared to those in other nations. God has given us so much, but have we given ourselves to Him? Because He wants to give you that new life. He wants to give you that fresh start. He wants to give you the peace and the comfort and the joy and all that stuff. But you've got to first be willing to die. Die to self. And then give yourself fully to Him. We're going to have a moment on Easter Sunday at 3 o'clock that if you haven't been baptized in the Christ, or maybe you were baptized in the Christ years ago, but over time you've taken more and more of yourself back. We're going to have a moment on Easter Sunday at 3 o'clock out on the patio. If you want to get baptized, we're going to have staff and elders out there. We hope that you'll come. You'll take advantage of that moment. If you want to do it today, don't put it off, do it today. But if you want to come on Easter Sunday, I think it's going to be a special day. Give yourself fully to Him. Just think about what our community would look like if we, as those who claim to be followers of Jesus, went out of our way to die to self and serve others around us. Jesus changed the world not by taking it by force, but by serving it. And are we ready and willing to do the same? So let me ask, today, who are you serving? As you leave and walk out the doors today, you're going to be handed something. It's a piece of a towel. And I want everyone to take a piece, a towel. Put it in your pocket, put it in your purse, put it somewhere where you're going to see it throughout this next week. And as we, as we get closer to Easter, when you fill this piece of towel in your pocket or you see it in your purse or you put it somewhere where you're going to notice that every time you see it or feel it, I want you to ask yourself the question, who am I serving? Who do you need to invite to Easter so they can come and hear about Jesus? Who do you need to show an act of kindness to? Who do you need to pray for? Who do you need to talk to about getting baptized? Because they've been coming to church for a while, but they've never given themselves fully to Christ. Who do you need to serve? Whose toes do you need to scrub? I want everybody to grab a piece of towel on the way out the door. Keep it with you all week long leading up to Easter. And every time you feel it, every time you see it, ask yourself the question, who are you serving? That's what I want us to be known for. It's great to have programs and activities and events. But if we're not serving, we're not following the example of our Lord. Let's go out and serve the world for Him. Would you pray with me?
Father, we thank you so much for this day that you've made. And Father, may we be reminded of why we're here. We're not here just to be entertained. We're not here just to, just to get our $3 worth of you and go home and feel good about ourselves. Father, we are here as part of this church on your planet to serve. So Father, may we be, may we be reminded of your definition of greatness. That greatness comes through service. We thank you for Jesus who served us in the greatest way by going to the cross. May we honor him by serving the world for him. In his name, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.